podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, Anfield Index listeners. This is a special podcast. This is the type of content we produce on AI Pro. So if you have been thinking about it, uh, you know, we get legends on like, um, you know, John Barnes is on this one, Ronnie Reed, and Jan Moby is on every single week. We've had Peter Beersley in the past and so many others. So if you enjoy listening to, you know, Liverpool legends coming on, we've got lots of other things under pressure. The whole shebang is on AI Pro. You know, special offer right now, thirty nine ninety nine. Get IS South over there, AnfieldIndex.com forward slash join. But however, however, this podcast with John Barnes, we're putting out for free for you because it's to promote his new movie. So uh, that's releasing on um, DVD. So have a listen. The whole show is about, you know, the film and John speaks about it candidly. Very, very good stuff from John, as always, a legend and speaks so well. So I hope you enjoy having a listen to this podcast with Eddie and John. Hello and welcome to Legends Lowdown here on AI Pro. I'm Eddie Gibbs and this is the show where we're lucky enough to catch up with some of the great names from Liverpool's illustrious past. Fresh from our chat last week with Ronnie Whelan and the excellent analysis we get here every week from Jan Mulby. Today, listeners, we have a special treat for you. If you're a regular listener to this show, then no doubt you will recall some of my recent chats with Peter Beardsley and just how often he referred to one player from that great side of the 1980s as a genuine superstar. Well, I'm delighted to say that that superstar Peter talked of in such glowing terms is with us today, and it's my distinct privilege to welcome back none other than the great John Barnes. How are you, John? Um, well, I have been better, I must admit, because I, uh, <laughs> my son got married in Tuscany um, three weeks ago, and when we were to our age, and the players you interviewed before will testify to this, you're not supposed to be doing too much exercise, but unfortunately <laughs> I decided to play volleyball and rub some up a pair of tendon and oh, no. shoulder. So I'm actually a bit laid up at the moment, but apart from that, I'm fine. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear that. It sounds like uh, injuries are still haunting you even this late on in your, uh, when you're supposed but to be it, it hadn't. It, it hadn't been haunting me because I didn't do anything. That is why I really should have known better when my son <laughs> said just before his wedding, and who on a wedding, day before a wedding or the day after the wedding would want to play volleyball and football. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm, 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 I've had an operation. So my shoulder's still sticking out and I'm in a brace, but apart from that, I'm good. Oh dear, I hope it uh, heals well and you'll be uh, back playing some volleyball soon enough. <laughs> no, 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 those, those days are completely over. <laughs> Grow old gracefully, that's what I say. <laughs> now, as rare as it seems, we're not here today to talk about the most recent Liverpool match or even the next one, but John has been busy starring and producing in a new film. It's called Barnes Poetry in Motion. It's been made by False Nine in association with BT Sport, produced by Luke Boamassi, John Barnes himself and Simon Dent, and directed by Luke Boamassi and Mark Kendrick. It's available now on the Liverpool Football Club official website, as well as Amazon, and it's at a bargain price of only £9.99. Now, having read the autobiography you wrote with football writer Henry Winter back in 1999, and also Dave Hill's excellent Out of His Skin, I watched the film this week, kind of expecting it simply to add pictures to the words in the books, John. But I have to say right off the bat, it exceeded all expectations. With sports films, you always expect an element of sanitised dumbing down of the actual events, but no stone was left unturned here, and the film got stuck into every aspect of your phenomenal career. How conscious of trying to tell your own story in as much depth as possible were you when making this film? Well, I think that's the most important thing. You know, I always feel that, me included, um, footballers probably write their autobiographies and, or, or maybe even do a documentary on themselves a bit too soon in their lives because, you know, of course, you have a whole life 
In fact, you've got more of a life after football than you do while you're actually playing football. And I suppose if you look at a lot of football stories, a lot of them are very similar. The names change, but the, but the, the, the stories are the same. Particularly if you played in the 80s when I played, you know, it's about scoring goals and then, you know, going out and life, generally speaking. Um, but I think this one is much more than that because, of course, it, it talks about, obviously, things apart from football that I've been through. And you have, probably have a different perspective, even of your career and the way things were when you're actually playing. You have a different perspective when you actually finish. So I think this is probably a little bit more comprehensive than either, you know, the, the DVD that I did. Um, the John Barnes story, which is obviously from when I was in my heyday playing as a, in, in my mid-twenties, um, or even my autobiography, which I wrote probably just as I was about finishing, finishing playing. Now, the film quickly moves on to talk about your formative years in Jamaica and obviously coming to London. I was really touched by the stories about landing at Heathrow and seeing the pictures and obviously your time at Stowe's Boys Club in Sudbury Court, age 16, is, uh, is, is covered well. What surprised me, though, is that you said you felt you were no different talent-wise to your peers at the same age. Uh, these kids seem to be getting signed much younger these days and uh, and judged or discarded faster than ever in many ways, way before the age of 16. We also hear, obviously, the story of a Watford, Watford fan reporting back to a scout at the club and on this incredible player he's just seen. So with the way scouting and football has changed, how likely or unlikely do you think it would be for a player to break into professional football in the way you did? Well, it's very unlikely. Um, it's a much easier path because, of course, now, um, you know, footballers, uh, as, as young footballers, as, as young as five, six, seven, eight, nine, they are spotted at that age either by schools because the relationship the schools now have with the clubs or even local clubs have with, with, with professional clubs all around, um, that no one will slip through the net, as I call it. Whereas, as, as I said, there are lots of my teammates from Stowe who never made it because they slipped through the net. So it's a much easier pathway now. Um, uh, however, I still feel, of course, there's every, for every Jamie Vardy story, and Jamie Vardy obviously, you know, came about maybe eight, nine years ago. I don't think that that's necessarily going to happen again, but they still are opportunities for players if they have the right dedication, the right discipline to actually do that. The problem which makes it a little bit harder is the fact that now, as much as you would be given an opportunity to go to an academy, even if you're 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, to get, come through the other end as, a, as an 18 or a 17-year-old, that is more difficult. And why that's more difficult is because, particularly in the Premier League, those clubs are looking for the superstar players. You know, they're buying, they're getting players as young as 14 and 15 from Germany, Italy, France to come to the Premier League who are the best of the best, the Fabregas type. And unless you're going to be a Steven Gerrard or a Robbie Fowler, you really aren't going to be given an opportunity at a top Premier League club. So, for example, Jamie Carragher, um, who I always use as an example, probably wouldn't make it at a top Premier League club now because he was a very good player, but he was not a superstar player. But he worked hard, he had a great attitude, and he had good ability. And he ended up winning the Champions League and you know being a main player in a, in a, in a, in a top Premier League club. Whereas now, unless you're going to be a Steven Gerrard or a Hobby Fowler, you know, players like that are going to end up playing, you know, for Bolton or for Preston if, if you're from the Northwest. Um, so I feel a little bit sorry for the, for the, for the local kids, unless, as I say, they have the talent of a, a Michael Owen, Robbie Fowler, Steven Gerrard. Yeah, I think that sums it up brilliantly. Uh, I couldn't agree more. It's a, it's a, it's a sad indictment of the modern game in some ways that a story of yours couldn't be repeated because it's such a heartwarming story, but I guess it's the, uh, the inevitability of the world that we live in in some ways. The, I mean, uh, it's not just my story. It's, it's everybody's story. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you talk about the fact that an, an, a scout who came to Watford and said he'd seen his fabulous player. No, he didn't. He went to, to Watford and he may have known the scout and he said, have a look at this player. 
I was not a fabulous superstar player like a Raheem Sterling who at 14, you know, went to Liverpool to 500,000 pounds from Cuba or whatever it was. That wasn't the case. Back then, you didn't have young superstar players who people thought, oh, you know, look at this kid. We all want this kid. No, not at all. You went to, um, uh, were given an opportunity at, at whatever club it was, but you weren't treated. You weren't a young superstar kid. There weren't any young superstar kids back then. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a, it's a great story, as I say, and the film covers it, covers it brilliantly. The other thing that I felt the film really did was give a real community theme that obviously Nigel Callahan and Kenny Jacket kick it off with stories from your time at Watford. And I'm sure anyone who watches the film will immediately sort of see the fondness that uh, you guys had for each other in those early stages of your career. And the other thing obviously touched on was Graham Taylor and Elton John and deploying methods well ahead of their time, which was clearly a factor in the success that you all had at Watford. The film also covered Graham Taylor basically deciding it was Liverpool next for you in the same way Luther Blizzard had been allowed to, to join AC Milan previously. Uh, again, bringing it forward to today in this era of super agents and release clauses, this will seem alien to the modern football fan, but how certain were you and yourself that Anfield was the right move for John Barnes at the time? Well, of course, Liverpool were the best team in the country at the time. As much as they were banned from Europe, that even came into my mind that, you know, I don't, I want to go to a team who's going to be in the, the European Cup or the Champions well, it was European Cup back then, because back then you wanted to go to the right club for you. Um, and and uh, as you mentioned now, the, the criteria now is either money or prestige, whereas back then it's about going to the right club. Um, so Graham Taylor knew that that was the right move for me, because of course the advice that you were then given, because don't forget they weren't super agents. You just had an agent, and even then your agent would have wondered and worried and thought about what was right for you from a footballing perspective, whereas now it's more to do with from the agent's perspective, not all agents, but a lot of agents' perspective, is like, where will I get, where will I get the best deal? It's okay saying, where will my player get the best deal, but it's also, where will I get the best deal? So, of course, that's not always right for the player's career, but back then, managers always felt a responsibility and a love. I wouldn't even say a love for his player to know, okay, maybe he has outgrown this situation, so therefore, you know, where is the next step for him? And the next step for him is what's right for his career. Um, so, you know, I'd always be grateful for Graham Taylor for that, but I don't think he was much different to a lot of the managers back then who, if a player was going to move on, would give him the right advice as to, you know, where he thinks he could flourish. Yes, you will make the money and maybe you can make more money elsewhere, but it's more to do with the fact that what is right for your career from a footballing perspective. Yeah, incredible stuff. I mean, the modern football fan uh, that they never saw football in the 80s or early 90s would just be uh, absolutely dumbfounded by that. I'm sure that a manager uh, showing this love for players to see them thrive as much as themselves. Inc- incredible stuff really was. So, you know, but it wasn't, it's not only that. It's not only that because, you know, when you, uh, you earlier in the question, you spoke about Nigel Callan and, 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 and Kenny Jackie talking about, you know, the things we used to do at Watford in terms of the community work we used to do and how, we, how the relationship we actually had with the fans. And as much as that may have been, um, a little bit different to a lot of clubs but in many respects a lot of clubs were like that even Liverpool obviously not in the same way but if you look at the, the relationship and the, the connection between the Liverpool superstar players and the Liverpool fans even when I came it was in a different way because we didn't have to sing in front of the fans at a nightclub and, and, and go and do community <laughs> service in, 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 in pubs and stuff like that but just the, the relationship they had with the fans on a normal basis of even just walking down the street with them going into the normal pubs or, or, or restaurants or bars or or, or coffee shops and just being a part of the community. And that's what Bill Chelsea stressed. And that's what football was back then at any club. Liverpool, the biggest club in the country, had that. Watford in a different way. But if you went to any other clubs, Arsenal, you know, Tottenham, the players who played then really had a relationship, a normal, everyday relationship with the fans, which you don't see anymore today. 
So your signing was uh, 900,000 and obviously fees have, uh, have gone crazy. And I did think it was kind of funny later in the movie where uh, the various guests and people you had on the show would be asked what you would be worth today, because I think that was almost an impossible question. But that was in 1988 and it was just after Liverpool had signed John Aldridge and uh, Peter Beardsley came at the same time as you with Ray Houghton following not long after. You were collectively, I suppose, replacing not just Ian Rush, who went to Juventus, but in some ways, Kenny Dalglish, the player as well, who was very much winding down his own as illustrious career at the time. But watching some of these goals from this era uh, back in the film, it brought back some golden memories of the football team and how capable of, of, of a level these guys were playing. How, how aware were you of the standards you were setting at the time, or did Ronnie Moran really keep you as grounded as the film implies and the legend tells us? Oh, um, absolutely, because of course you, you know you talk about us four, if you like, replacing Russian Dalglish because Kenny had re- retired a year earlier. But of course, for the last previous, you know. Eight, seven, eight years was Russian Dalglish. Liverpool were a fantastic team, workmanlike team, like almost like a machine. And what really gave them this, their, 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 their flair and what's special about them in terms of scoring goals was Russian Dalglish. You didn't really get a lot of goals from elsewhere, but you got lots of other stuff elsewhere, which really made them the team they were from Sunes, who was a fantastic player. And of course, even Terry McDermott, Sammy Lee, Jimmy Case, Ronnie Whelan. But really, why they scored goals was Russian Dalglish. So of course, you know, when Kenny obviously resigned, or retired a year earlier, Russia's gone to Juventus, so of course we then come. But the interesting thing about that was um, everyone was wondering how it was going to work, me included. I never thought I would be a Liverpool player. John Orge was playing at Oxford, played a completely different type of game. The one player you would think would fit him was Peter Bears, because at Newcastle and the way they played, they did play that type of football, and he was, a, on the face of it, a Liverpool player. You know, Ray Houghton even, probably yes, because, you know, if you look at Sammy Lee, um, Jimmy Case, hard-working midfield players. Ray Houghton was a little bit like that, but he wasn't a player player. But I suppose it's really myself and Aldridge who would think, how are we going to fit into the way Liverpool play? But what Liverpool did was they looked at, and I do touch on this a lot in the um, in the, um, the DVD. Yeah, so Liverpool would have looked at myself and John Aldridge over a period of time to know that we can fit into what they want without us knowing it ourselves. Because when I'm playing for Watford week in, week out, and doing things, I'm not thinking, oh, I could fit into what Liverpool want. I'm not even thinking about Liverpool. But Liverpool, as football clubs did back then, not just Liverpool, they looked at a player over a period of time to see whether he had the ability, the temperament, the quality to to show that over a period of time that when he comes to Liverpool, he's able to handle the pressure of performing week in, week out because they look at you. Whereas these days, as I do mention in the DVD as well, you know, a player has six, seven, eight, nine good games and he costs £20 million and therefore you see the inconsistency in players. Whereas back then, Liverpool and football clubs generally didn't take chances. You know, if you're going to Liverpool, you have to be, of course, they didn't get everything right, but 90% of the time, they're looking at a player who they know, regardless of the type of football he's playing where he is, he can fit into what he wants. So, coming to replace Russian Dalglish was completely alien to me, and it was completely different, and we didn't directly replace him in terms of the way they played, but they knew they could adapt, and Kenny knew we could adapt to play a different brand of football, but still be as successful. Yeah, brilliant answer there. It's a, it's a real insight to that time and that era of football and what, and what Kenny did to change from, I mean, you touched on quite a lot in that film again about how you kind of still felt Bill Shankly's presence in so many ways. And obviously that went on to Joe Fagan, Bob Paisley and the likes and, and how Kenny took it on, but changed it in a way that created so much more success for Liverpool. Well, it needed, it needed changing because of course, and that's where I also say I feel a bit sorry for Graham soon is because Graham was, you know, doing things that needed to be done. But he probably just did it a little bit too soon. Um, and I think the most important thing about that was uh, the, the character of the players that Liverpool always signed in the past. They never, never necessarily looked at, at the, 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 yes, they looked at the ability. Of course they did. 
But the character is much more important because I always say that a player like Glenn Hoddle, who in my opinion is a great, and in my lifetime, the, 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 the most technically gifted English player probably ever, but definitely in my lifetime, would probably not have been a Liverpool-type player, no matter how good he was. Um, and I'm not saying that he had a, a negative character, but just in terms of, and he had a perfect character, but a perfect character for Tottenham, or a perfect character, as if obviously for Monaco. So Liverpool also looked at the character of the players. They didn't need the best players, but they needed to have that balance, that blend. And um, that is why, as much as myself and John Aldridge, and even, you know, Peter Bearsley, in fact, Peter Bearsley never had a Liverpool character, if you, if you like. So the <laughs> Liverpool characters, you know, playing in the 80s was about, Yes, you play well, but of course, being one of the lads, you go out, you have a good drink, and, you know, because of course, that was a big part of the culture, footballing culture back then, and Peter didn't do that. <laughs> but from a footballing perspective, Peter's culture, footballing culture was, was perfect for Liverpool, being a selfless player. And he's my favorite Liverpool player to play with, Peter, because, you know, he was just so selfless, was working for the team, if you wanted to play in midfield, he would much rather somebody else score a goal, or he'd much rather work back hard for somebody else to have a rest. So he was the perfect Liverpool player. Well, he's uh, said you're the perfect Liverpool player many times to me, so <laughs> I think it's nice that you're patting each other on the back with that one. The film, <laughs> uh, as I said, went on to, uh, it, it, it left no stone unturned and it went on to cover racism and the famous, uh, the infamous uh, banana photo at Goodison and, of course, the poetry and motion banner which the film shares its name. I, I found the interview, though, with uh, Jag Singh Gill absolutely compelling stuff and wanted to ask just how aware you were at the time of your success at Liverpool and how it was opening doors for supporters of black and Asian communities to start attending matches. I mean, that, I was around at the time. I was going to football matches at the time. I was watching TV, but I don't know. You live with these blinkers on as a, as a young white kid uh, supporting Liverpool, that all that was going on and you weren't even aware of it. And it absolutely torments you in some ways inside that that was happening to these people and they, they felt under threat to go to games. Uh, how aware of you that well, you were opening these doors? Well, in I mean, it's happening now. And of course, for, for white people who know it's happening, I say, oh, does that still happen? I'm not talking about the, the overt racism or aggression that happens at football matches because that doesn't happen anymore, but I'm talking about in society. So, there's no, in fact, it's getting worse in society. If you look at what's been going on politically over the world in the last year or so, and you can see that it's now rearing its ugly head. I'm, I've, I've always been aware of it. I've always been aware of it. In terms of, of, of changing perceptions or opening doors, um, obviously, I still knew that, of course, because then, you had a lot of black people supporting Liverpool and I was aware of that. But depending on what period of time, in the middle, okay, I went to Liverpool in 87, and it was still quite a, a, a dangerous place to go if you were a black supporter. So I then was aware that they may have had a lot more black supporters of Liverpool, but still a lot of them didn't go to the matches because it was still quite dangerous to go to certain matches. Um, obviously, my time at Liverpool between 1987 and 1997, towards the mid-90s, that would have changed because, of course, from a hooligan perspective, in, you know, since the Premier League, and they really made a big effort, and since kick it out and show racism in the red card, and it became much more media attentive, um, it became much safer for, for black and ethnic minority fans to go to matches. So, of course, then you would visibly then see a change in the demographic of football fans. But in my early days, as much as I then understood that they felt proud and, you know, they were supporting Liverpool, it was still not visible in terms of the amount of black supporters still going to matches. Because it always was visible in London. Even in the early 80s when I played for Watford, you had lots of black supporters going to Arsenal and, and places like that. But of course, at Liverpool and maybe up north, where the black community is probably not as, as, as big as it is down south, um, and not as uh, entrenched in, 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 in society, it still was an issue. Um, but in terms of me being visibly aware of the difference, no, I understood that, yes, they had lots more black Liverpool fans, or, or who happy to say that they're Liverpool fans, 
but he still didn't see in the early days many black faces of football. Yeah, again, another compelling part of the film, and uh, I'm sure anyone that watches that interview and, and sees sees that banner being carried around, it will it will really resonate how powerful a, a statement that makes. I mean, fast forward to today and the diversity, even an organisation like ours here at Anfield Index, with employees, contributors, and volunteers from all sorts of backgrounds and religions, with a common love, if you like, for Liverpool Football Club. And even on on the plane, I took to Kiev to watch the Champions League final. La 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 was being sung by loads of South Asian origin lads, and they were every bit as vocal and jubilant as the Scousers they were singing along with so uh, I think uh, I think you're uh, you have a lot to be uh, a lot of people have a lot to thank you for in that way so I know that you, you're only in control of so much of it but uh, certainly at Liverpool Football Club I think uh, I think the supporters have a lot to thank you for mostly that's what football does because football brings people together when football fans then see each other and for example as I as, as, as if you're walking down the road and a, a guy with a turban who's a seat guy comes towards you <clears throat> you probably have a perception of him then all of a sudden for whatever reason, you start the conversation and they start talking about football and Robbie Fowler and Steven Gerrard, then you, you identify with him. And that's, that's what has happened at football matches. Then all of a sudden, someone who you would never have spoken to before, you identify because of your love of, A, Liverpool and your love of football. And then it's how football is a great um, tool to bring people together because we have misconceptions of people based on what we've been wrongly told about them. So, of course, either you'd have thought, well, he likes cricket. Or he's not into sport because, you know, Sikhs are just doctors and lawyers or their parents just want them to be educated. Whereas when all of a sudden you then see that, well, they're just like me, regardless of their background, regardless of their job, we both love Liverpool and he knows much, as much about Liverpool than I do. Um, and that, that, that has that bond. And that is why sport is such a good way of bringing people together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the film goes on then to talk about Hillsborough, and for me, it's always harrowing whenever I speak to players or fans who were there on on that fateful day. Now, obviously, Hillsborough is a generation defining tragedy, and your time at Liverpool uh, had to be covered in the film. And as many will have seen, it's back in the news this week with the news that Sir Norman Betson will not face uh, criminal charges. But the takeaway from the film for me, though, was the ongoing affirmation of how every Liverpool player seems to be able to talk about with such dignity all these years on, in spite of the grief attending few. Funerals, a film alluded to you almost becoming a counsellor. None of you shy away from talking about it frankly and openly in the media when asked. And for me, this is what humanised that group of legendary players. It made you all seem like real people for the first time to me rather than a starstruck kid watching you kick a ball around in aura. How, how difficult is it to cover a subject like that in a film like this? It wasn't difficult at all because, of course, this is what happens in life and it's, it's a human aspect and we're all friends and fathers and husbands and and. and, and normal people who, if we went through that, that on the other side of things, us being the real victims, because we weren't the victims, the victims are the ones who lost their lives and their families, how would we react? Now, I suppose, what helped that situation in terms of us um, being able to not just not just talk about it in the way we do, but really have that relationship with people who were involved, was the fact that we were involved with these fans on a, on a human level before Hillsborough. You know, so, you know, we would have known, like, obviously these are three girls who, who fortunately, um, thank God, survived, but the, the overriding image of the next day, we had three girls, and I know them to this day, pushed up against the fence, um, who used to come to the training ground, we used to see them in town, we used to stop and, you know, have a chat and have a drink with them. So we knew we had a relationship with fans on that level. So therefore, when we then had to respond to that and to either interact with them or to go to the funerals or to, or to go to events whereby these people and their bereaved are going to be there, we already had that relationship with them. Now it'll be difficult because now you'll have players going into an environment which is completely alien to them. They don't mix with fans whatsoever. So under those circumstances, it may be difficult. But it wasn't difficult for me or for a lot of the players in, in, in any way, shape or form. 
you think about John Aldridge and Steve McMahon, who would have known people who were involved, whose friends would have been involved, whose families would have been involved. So, and they would have had a relationship with these people over and above football anyway. So then on a human level, to get involved was, was a no-brainer, a very simple thing to do. Yeah, simple, but uh, I mean, credit to you and all the guys for what you did and for, the, for what you continue to do today. And I, I think the, I think it was excellently covered in the, in the film. I think you guys did an absolutely brilliant job in uh, in conveying the emotion and, and, and what you went through at the time. Now, I mean, I was watching the ride stuff today, funny enough, this morning. And, and the interesting thing about it, this whole thing came on about Betterton and talking about whether he's going to be prosecuted or not. And what somebody said um, was the overriding thing was at least now the fans have been vindicated, which for me, which... Of course, that's the most important thing, but that's the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it just continues. For me, that was the biggest thing. That was the biggest thing for people to even believe that. That's the most incredible thing for me was for people to believe the stories that were told, regardless of, you know, whatever else you may believe about, you know, because, of course, we're very tribal. Liverpool fans, Man United fans, these fans are horrible, these fans are nice. You people do this. From a human perspective, how could anyone believe the lies that were told about them? So today, when you have people who necessarily weren't involved, and who are from Liverpool to then say, oh, I can't believe that yes, they've been vindicated. But that then suggests that they would have believed the lies to begin with. Now, <laughs> yeah. from a human perspective, how could anyone believe uh, the stories that were told? And that's what is the most incredible thing. Yeah, okay, it's incredible that the lies could have been told and the Sun newspaper and whatever, you know, was a disgrace. And, but for normal, average people to believe the lies that were told for me is more incredible than, than anything else. For them now to come out, to, for them now to be saying, oh, at least now we know the truth and we now believe and, and, you know, it was all lies. As if they actually believed it. That, for me, was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the film uh, then goes on to cover your international career with England, and uh, that's something that seems to continuously divide opinion in the mainstream, but no less than 79 caps would equal a pretty successful stint in most people's eyes. Uh, the film mentions the late Don Howe and Bobby Robson's style of coaching, and with all due respect to those guys and their achievements in the game, Steve McMahon and Glenn Hoddle in this movie gave the best explanations I think I've ever heard on why Liverpool's barns seem to be a bit different to England's. What Was that something you were aware of throughout your time with England, or did it materialise on reflection all these years on? Oh, no, 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 absolutely. I knew, I knew but I'm not going to, I would never come out as an England player and say, the reason why I'm not playing the way I play for Liverpool for England is because we play a completely different brand of football, and this football is, should be back in the 70s, and, you know, I, that's why I use Glenn Hoddle as an example. I said if Glenn Hoddle was French, Italian, German, he would have had 100 caps and been the, the, the main player in the team. But because at that time, English football was about hard work, effort, commitment, drive, you stay in your positions, you know, there's no flair involved. That's why I said I would love to be playing in the England team now. They're now trying to do that. And not just now. Let's say in the last 10 years, England have been trying to catch up with the rest of the world. But Liverpool played that type of football. Liverpool from the 70s played a European type of football in terms of keeping possession, dominating possession, short passes, um, moving around, different movements in position, rotations of positions, which in England we didn't do. So I completely understood why I didn't, but I was never going to criticize England and say why I'm not consistently playing well for England is because of this. You just try and do what you do and try and do your best. So an era with a coach like a Capello or an Eriksson would have uh, would have been far more suited to you then. Well, it's not it's modern football. It's not it's not it's not necessarily the coach. It's, it's it's football evolved in England. So England then to decide that now we have to catch up with the rest of the world. And what also helped is the change of the laws because don't forget when we played for England, you know, you were allowed to, pardon my French, kick crap out of, out of teams and be very aggressive with them, which is what we were. Whereas now, because you can't do that, we can't be as aggressive as, as, as we were back then. We have to be more technical. So, of course, the laws of the game changing also helped us in then thinking we then have to change the way we play. 
and come out with players who are very technical in being able to keep the ball from the opposition, being able to draw free kicks in the right areas and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. look, I'm not supposed you have players who played Rodney Marsh, for example, you know, who was a yeah. fantastic player who never got many England caps, but he was a real technical player. But of course, he was deemed to be a luxury player because of his, because of the way he played. I suppose George Best is one who you could say, you know, just completely was fine and comfortable and, and transcended the errors of when football was a technical game to when football was an aggressive game, and he could do both. Yeah, good stuff there. Now, no documentary on John Barnes would be complete without the real story behind what the world in motion hit, that part of the film, uh, where the comments from yourself and Keith Allen reflected a genuinely fun experience of your time at the top of the pop charts. Yeah, but of course, back then also, you know, regardless of whether we're going to do songs, we, we, we went out and had fun, you know. So even the way the, the song was made was a typical football story in terms of the lads went had a few drinks. Half the lads didn't turn up because they thought the song wasn't going to be any good. And they all jumped on the bandwagon when it got to, got to number one and said we all did it. But it's only six of us turned up to do it. You know, myself, Gazza, Peter Bersley, Chris Walter, Des Walker, Steve McMahon. And of course, with Keith Allen being there, um, kind of held that situation because we had a few jerks and then a rap was written when a rap wasn't supposed to be in it. And, <laughs> but it was done. It was not done. Maybe from, yes, it was done in a very professional manner from the New Order point of view. This is a song that they want to do. But from a footballer's point of view, it was a typical football song where we turn up, have a few drinks, not very professional in, in, in our commitment and our determination towards it, fooling around all the time. Uh, so the reason why it was a good song was because of New Order, not because of the players, I have to say. Well, you still did well uh, with all those keepy uppies uh, after a few drinks, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the back to Liverpool and and later Liverpool, if you like the uh, the the Achilles tendon injury you mentioned in the film. Uh, you said you weren't even aware within yourself that the time had come to reinvent yourself as a central midfielder. At the time, you did, and Roy Evans recollects in the film uh, that. Uh, and it's something I've always wondered, uh, who was the person or people brave enough to tell uh, a superstar like John Barnes, hey, maybe this running and dribbling pass players isn't for you anymore, John? Well, once again, John Barnes was not brought up as a superstar footballer. And even when I went to Liverpool, and on the face of it, you could say between 87 and 92, when that happened, people would say, oh, yeah, you're the star player, superstar player. That was never the case with me. I never felt that way. I felt like I was part of the team and whatever I, I could bring to the team. And I knew then what I had to bring to the team was sitting in front of the back four and making passes and trying to tackle as much as I'm not a tackler. But because we dominated possession, if you look at Andrew Perlo, for example, I'm not comparing myself to him, but I'm saying that Pep Guardiola was never a, a, a ball winner, neither was Andrew Perlo, but they played in a holding role. And Liverpool, I knew that that's, if I wanted to continue to play, because I couldn't run anymore, basically, do what I did, that's what I would have to do. And because of the responsibility I felt for the team, which I always felt for the team, even when I was a rampaging left winger who would look like a, a flamboyant superstar player, I still felt my responsibility is always to the team. This is now what I have to give to the team. Also, from the point of view of the experience that I actually had with them having a lot of young players coming through now, uh, it was probably felt more of a responsible position for the Fowlers and the McManamans and the Rednaps to then go and show what they can do. So there are times when I felt I could still maybe do that, but of course that was not what was required of me. And that goes back to my days at Stowe Boys Club when I was never a centre-back and when I got to Stowe Boys Club and everybody wanted to be an attacking player because we were a fantastic team scoring goals. I, I, I played as a centre-back for four years, which is not my position, because I always felt, because of the way I was brought up with my father and, you know, on the army base and in a, in a, in a military um, uh, capacity, felt the responsibility to the collective. So it wasn't an issue with me whatsoever, me just all of a sudden not shunning the limelight, but being 
understanding that, you know, this is now going to be my role for the rest of my career. Yeah, I think Steve McMahon talks very eloquently about that in the film, about how uh, you came in and everyone kind of had this perception that they were signing this individual, how a Liverpool signing an individual. And he said, but right from day one, it was all about the team for John Barnes. And I think that's uh, that's something that, I mean, I don't think any Liverpool fans think anything other anyway, but it's uh, it's always something that's nice to be reminded of from time to time. But that is, but that is what Liverpool did. As, as I said, I never saw myself as being a Liverpool-type player. And even when I went to Liverpool and the way I started to play, which was fantastic because of getting so much of the ball, being able to do whatever I did. But you quickly learn from what you see at Liverpool. That's why I mentioned Bill Shanky. So you learn, no matter who you are, from the superstar Kenny Dalglish to Kevin Keegan to Kenny Dalglish to Ian Rush, the most important thing is your responsibility to the team and your teammates. And team yourself just like the so-called lesser members of the team. Not better than them, not worse, not, not, not worse than them, but being part of them. Having different attributes, bringing different things to the team. No one is more important than anybody else. So... Even though for the fans may look at that and think, yes, he may be doing more than Ray Houghton or Steve or, 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 or Ronnie Wheeler. I never felt that way whatsoever. And I think that's where football has changed. And I mentioned it in the, in, in, in the DVD where I think that now fans have put the superstar players above their teammates, which makes their teammates responsible when they win. But when they lose, they're not responsible because it's a so-called lesser, lesser player. But that's not just my perception. That's the perception that Liverpool had from Bill Shankly. So Kevin Keegan or Kenny Dalglish or Roger Hunt before them, uh, or John Toshak, never felt, or the superstar players, whoever they were, never felt more important than the so-called average players in the team or the so-called lesser players in the team. Yeah, good stuff. The uh, community impact, again, resurfaces in the film when you drive and uh, take a trip through Toxteth, uh, plus the, the stories of the jerk chicken as the players uh, pre-match casino. I was really giggling away when they, when you were talking about that. But the affinity with the people in the city is striking uh, throughout the film, and uh, you go on to mention how you and so many former players and managers who joined the club from far and wide are still living in the area long after their time with the football club has ended. The, but the film really opened my eyes about how ingrained in the local community you were as a player and still are today many sports films would have probably taken the easy option and just focused solely on the football so so how conscious of you that you wanted to convey this side of yourself i wasn't conscious of what to convey it was just reality that's what it was um uh so steve mcmahon or 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 or, or john aldridge down in the south end of liverpool uh or the players who lived in southport if you look at ronnie Wheeler now up in southport and kenny daglish in southport you know when you moved there you really became part of the community um obviously from the perspective of Topset and the black community and that being probably a little bit more media attentive in terms of, you know, the, the change in, in the perceptions of football in terms of now black people getting involved in football. That's probably more high profile than John Aldridge integrating himself to the people in Speak and Garston, which is where he's from. But he was completely ingrained in that, in that community and he still is now anyway. So this is, that, that was nothing new in football. Obviously from the media's perspective, it's a nice story. However, in, in all, all over, you know, all over the country in terms of back then, players who lived in a particular or played for a particular club who are either from that area or moved to that area were exactly the same as I was. Yeah, on to the leaving of Liverpool then, and uh, which all play, it comes to all players at some point. And Robbie Fowler summed it up perfectly in the film when he said that John Barnes in Newcastle and Charlton shirts never seemed quite right. And I had similar vibes watching Fowler himself and Ian Rush in Leeds kits. But it's easy to forget as fans that football's a career for you guys. So... Uh, how easy or tricky was your own exit from Liverpool as a player after those 10 incredible years? From a footballing perspective, it was, it was, it was easy because I knew I wasn't able to do what I did. So if I wanted to continue to play, and what I possibly could have done was stayed at Liverpool and not played, been in the reserve. I don't know about going on staff, possibly, but, but I wanted to be a footballer. And I have to say, and as much as football fans, and, and I mentioned this in the DVD as well, and, and football players 
you know, they say I could never play for, for that club. They could, because if you look at the Evertonians, I'm not going to grasp them up, who played for Liverpool, who supported Everton, <laughs> who say they would never play for Everton and vice versa, you would. So therefore, what I love more than Liverpool is football. I love football first. So for me, who loves football, who wants to play football, who recognizes that I'm not able to play for Liverpool anymore because I'm not good enough. If I want to continue to play what I, the sport that I love, uh, I have to leave. So as much, yes, it was a wrench leaving Liverpool, but it was exciting. And as much as I obviously didn't do a swap for Newcastle or Charlton, and that's why people say it doesn't look right. But for me, I would give 100% for those clubs while I'm actually there um, and, and, and try and do as well as, as, as I can. And, and even ingratiate myself as much as I wasn't a Charlton long enough. But even at Newcastle, the relationship that football players should have with their community, their fans. I, I tried to do the same thing at Newcastle. I wasn't there long enough to get into it like I did at Liverpool. But, you know, um, so it wasn't as big a wrench for me. And that's not because I don't love Liverpool more than somebody else loves Liverpool, but because I, you know, wanted to continue to play and I recognised that that's what I had to do. And um, I would never, ever feel that, uh, you know, because even if I'd been in Liverpool for 20 years uh, and I wanted to finish my career, um, I wouldn't play for anybody else because I want to finish my career either at the highest level or playing for Liverpool. If I felt I could still play, I would I would go to wherever. And John Aldridge epitomizes that more than anybody else. You know, he went on to Tranmere after he came back and, and played for Tranmere and scored nearly as many goals for Tranmere as he did for Liverpool because he loved playing football. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's one. I think he probably. I don't think he would have gone to Everton, but um, <laughs> you know, because he's a Liverpool fan. However, he he, he went to China. <laughs> uh, Ray Evans said, uh, he, and and I mean, you can tell the way you speak about football, the way we see you in the media often. You you speak so eloquently about football. You speak so eloquently about everything for that matter. But Roy Evans said he was surprised we've not seen you in more managerial positions. Uh, being based in Scotland myself, I distinctly remember your time as a Celtic manager, uh, much in the same way as we see Stephen Gerrard now on the other side of Glasgow. And I remember thinking at the time, this job is perfect for John Barnes to cut his teeth in management, a big club, pressure cooker environment, perhaps maybe even one day rock up in the manager's chair at Anfield. Now, I know you've spoken before about how harshly judged you felt your Celtic experience was. And whilst you've managed at Tranmere and the Jamaican side uh, since then, you've also mentioned in the DVD there that you'd still be open to offers. Do you feel your old firm experience has in some ways put you off football management and all that comes with it? Not at all. How does it put me off football management? Um, what put, nothing is putting off football management. But why I know it's going to be harder is because of the perception people have of people like me um, to be a football manager. And it doesn't mean because at Celtic I had a very good um, win 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 rate, win percentage. My win percentage was second only to Jock Steen. It was better than Ben Janssen, who won the league two years earlier. So obviously the Inverness Castle Inverness Castle game is the straw that broke the camel's back. But if you just look at the percentage of wins that I had and, and the points that I'd won, um, there was nothing wrong with that. The harmony wasn't right. There were people who didn't want me to be there to begin with. So, of course, then when all of a sudden we lost that game and we lost one or two games, then that's when the harmony had to be right. It's a little bit similar to Jurgen Klopp. If you look at Jurgen Klopp and Brendan Rodgers, and I'm not talking about possibly in the last six months when Liverpool have just completely, you know, been absolutely fantastic. Their records weren't dissimilar in terms of the win rates and the amount of games they'd won. However, because the harmony was right for Jurgen Klopp, he then went on to do what he's doing now. But even when the, the, their results and their records were similar, the harmony and the togetherness and the belief was always there for Jurgen, which probably wasn't there for Brendan in the end, which means that he went on to do that. And that was the biggest problem that I had at Celtic. Obviously, Larson breaking his leg and Lambert breaking his jaw where we couldn't compete against Rangers anymore for that season anyway meant that we weren't going to win the league. But up until I actually left, we were four or five points behind Rangers. Yes, um, we lost even at Kelly Tissell, but that, that was the situation. But it's always going to be difficult for people like me um, 
How many brand managers are there, regardless of how? And if you talk about, let's talk about Frank Reichardt. He won the European Cup with Barcelona. And you would have thought that that would have, you know, opened the door for black managers, but it hasn't. So it's a fact. Not just in, not just in football, but in life. And I always look at life and say, how many black captains of industry? How many black leaders are there? How many black politicians are there? So, you know, it's a situation whereby it hasn't put me off football, but what is, and once again, nothing has put me off, but what is going to be make it more difficult is that if myself or anybody else is given an opportunity and you lose a few matches, then the question marks will be there based on the color of your skin. Whereas the question mark, and I'll tell you who I like me to, the English managers. There's not going to be an English manager who's going to be given the job, a white English manager, sorry. A white English manager is not going to get the Arsenal, Liverpool, Man United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham job if it becomes available because of the perception of white English managers. And Sam Allardyce talked about that all the time, talked about English managers not being given opportunities, and it is a fact. It is a fact because of the perception of European managers over English managers. So if we recognize that that's a fact, why can't we recognize that the question marks about black people generally, but let's talk about black managers, which has been ingrained in us for 200 years, why is all of a sudden that not uh, an issue or that not apparent? So, you know, but I love football and I believe I could be a good manager, but it's a question of other people believing. And other people believing, I'll tell you when other people will believe. It'll be fine if you get a job and you win all the matches. They're going to go, not a problem. So it's not a question of when you're winning. People believe in you, but when you're losing, that is when the question marks will come. And a question mark doesn't come over a white manager when he loses matches to say, well, can white people make good managers? But that question, which I think is an inherently racist question, as to whether black people can make good managers, it's a racist question because it presupposes that they're not able to become good managers because of the color of their skin. And in many respects, that is true. And it's not because of what they have to offer. It's because of the perception people have of them. Not them individually, but people like them when things don't go well. So we can talk about this for so long and, okay. you know, in fact, I'm writing a book. It's so a very thought-provoking thought answer you give there. Really, really thought-provoking <laughs> yeah. stuff. And uh, I, for one... It'll be in the book when it comes out. <laughs> I, for one, certainly hope that we'll uh, we'll see you back in football management one day where you've still got the passion burning like that for the game. Uh, in closing the show today, I wanted to read a couple of quotes about the film that are out there in the media. Firstly, from the, uh, the Mirror's Darren Lewis, who says, uh, Barnes' poetry in motion is a fascinating insight into the reasons why the former Watford, Liverpool and England winger remain such a fantastic icon, footballer, and a man. And secondly, one from uh, Anfield Index's regulars, uh, Sashin Nakrani of The Guardian, who says, uh, a stylish and authoritative account of an English football icon. A quick reminder of where you can buy the film. It's available on DVD now, and it's only £9.99 from the official Liverpool Watford websites plus Amazon.co.uk. And all that remains is the, is to thank the brilliant John Barnes for his time today. And we can only hope he'll grace us with, a, with another podcast appearance on Anfield Index very soon, perhaps to talk about Klopp and the modern red. So thank you, John. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All the very best. Until the next time, up the reds. Sports Social Podcast Network.